So, Mark. Yes. I want to talk about the 2007-2008 Hollywood writer's strike. Okay. Do you remember this at all? Obviously. Is it a thing you were aware of? Yeah, I think that was a thing everyone was aware of if you were watching TV. Right, because this was that period when, like, all these TV shows had their seasons strangely shortened. Right. It was the start of the 13-episode standard that seems to have taken hold. Right. Yeah, if you have been a fan of a show from the back half of the last decade, and you're like, huh, this one season has many fewer episodes, this is why. In 2007, the Writers Guild of America went on strike because of their negotiations with studios over specifically how writers should be compensated in a changing market. The big things they were concerned about were writers being paid proper rates for stuff they wrote for consumption on the internet, and they wanted writers to get residuals for home video sales, because by this point, studios were making a lot of their money on DVDs. Both are very valid. Right, yeah. I mean, we often see these strikes when the industry is facing some big turning point. The recent challenge for the writers when they almost went on strike in 2019 was based around writers wanting to be sure that they could still make a living wage when many shows have exclusivity contracts, but writers were paid by the episode and episode orders were a lot shorter. Yeah, I mean, the system now is such that basically you still have to write the same, but get paid less based on my understanding of what's going on. Right, which is why we're still seeing some of these conflicts. Right. But I was wondering, do you have any like particular memories of shows you were following or ways that the writer's strike had an impact on Hollywood? The writer's strike is the reason 30 Rock started doing a live show every so often. Is that why? Yeah, so during the writer's strike, when the season was shortened, the cast performed a live episode at UCB in New York. And then I did not know this. They decided to then perform an episode live on air. So That's fascinating. It was just, I think, a way basically of passing the time while they were off the air. And I'm sure they got a little bit from UCB. And then they decided to try it out. Sure. I mean, a similar thing led to the creation of a high school favorite of mine, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Because prior to the writer's strike, internet content was not covered by Writers Guild rules. So Joss Whedon and his compatriots were able to go and make this internet musical about a supervillain. I had completely forgotten that existed until this very moment. It's a nice little gem. It is It is fun. Very reminiscent of the era. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is a, a sing-along blog. Yeah, it is peak YouTube in 2008. Yeah. Um. Other things that are weird that came out of the writer's strike, that was the year that the Golden Globes had, like, no patter and no jokes. Somebody just went on stage and read out the winners. Oh, yeah. That was weird. And, of course, it's because of the writer's strike that Quantum of Solace was filmed without a script. That movie is so bad. Well, they didn't have a script. Yes. I guess it's better than could be expected for a film without a script, but it's still just so bad. The reason I was thinking about the writer's strike and the way that it disrupted Hollywood is because every time we are planning out our next couple of months of this show, I go and look at all the movies that are being released and say, like, what are some things that we could tie into to try to get some new people to listen to the show. They're looking for content related to Trolls World Tour. Maybe we should do an episode on DreamWorks Trolls. Oh, God. So we did this. We decided to do an episode on A Quiet Place because A Quiet Place Part 2 was supposed to open, but that was one of the first dominoes to fall in the coronavirus-influenced delaying of a bunch of movies. Quiet Place 2 and 
James Bond were, I think, the first two I saw to be delayed. And Bond was pushed back seven months from April to November. Right. And that's actually not even the furthest. Fast 9, which was supposed to come out, I believe, in April, has been pushed back to next year. That's crazy. I feel like that is a sign that they were very grateful for an excuse to push it back. Maybe. I mean, it's also the thing where there's only so much room in a studio's schedule for a tentpole movie. And I haven't looked at Universal's schedule to game this out, but when you move something, you're also affecting the movies that were already placed in that time slot. It's true. It probably would have crowded out whatever they had ready to release in the fall. Right. So that's part of the challenge that comes along with this as well. And I'm guessing that's why Disney for so long was so resistant to moving Mulan to the point that they held a premiere for it, stubbornly insisting that it was going to come out in March. And they just, at the end of last week, finally caved and said, no, Mulan's coming out later in the year. Well, luckily, we have some things accelerating their home streaming. And that includes, I don't think it's accelerated, but we're rapidly approaching the date Cats will be available for rent. Are you planning on on renting Cats? Oh, absolutely not. I just like to know that it's there. All right. In case it It is true that, of course, some things have been happening there where, like, Disney dropped Frozen 2 on streaming three months early for parents whose kids are now trapped at home. Honestly, that is one of the first nice things Disney has done. They're recognizing the product they have. Wonder if they'll start Disney Plus early in the UK. That would be nice. Oh, that would be nice for you. Then you could watch Frozen 2. I know. A movie I have no desire to watch, but would end up on a list of movies I am watching if I am stuck at home for weeks at a time. Well, the governor of Maryland just closed the movie theaters, which were like the one thing that was making me think, like, I want to be a good person and not go out unless I need to, but also movie theaters. And as we are recording in an hour, they will close until further notice. Hogan is handling this strangely well, from what I've heard. Yeah, he's doing a pretty good job. But that is definitely one temptation that I don't trust you to resist. I mean, this is the thing. I went twice last weekend. William. I saw Onward, which rules, and The Hunt, which is kind of fun. William. I always checked online on the seating chart to make sure there would be few enough people that I could socially distance within the theater. Two meters away. I was one of three people in my Onward screening. Oh, (laughs) you probably were okay, as long as you wash your hands after. Everyone, let's keep in mind these hand-washing procedures for the future, too. Yeah, it's cool to wash your hands even when there's not a pandemic going on. Yeah, because you notice very quickly how much more people are washing their hands in the bathroom, and you're like, hmm, maybe we should have all been doing this a lot before this happened. That's an idea. So we're in a in a time of tumult with the coronavirus, canceling movies, computer failure, canceling our podcast. <laughs> was that last week? Yeah, that was last week. You didn't want to release just my audio, which you I still have access to. Your half of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's specifically my track that has gone missing. Just imagine if there was a whole episode where you didn't say anything and it was just me responding. Uh, it would be bad. It would be very weird. My idea for this episode was just to have 30 minutes of silence, but Will shot that one down. It's not a silent film. It's a quiet film. What if we just whisper in ASMR the rest of the episode? I mean, you could do that. <laughs> I don't really understand I feel what like ASMR is. I make too It would many take jokes. a lot out of my exuberance. I was first introduced to ASMR as slow TV, these like Scandinavian channels where you just turn it on and it just like shows a train moving through a landscape. I don't get that. I get the log of on the fire burning, but slow TV, I guess I'm just too American to get it. Did you know there was a Philly Fanatic Yule Log that came out last year? Like they were burning the Fanatic at the stake? No, it's like the Fanatic's Christmas tree. So he's got a Yule Log, but it's like him sitting next to it. 
Every once in a while, he'll, like, open a present or something like that or honk his fanatic horn. Call me when it's gritty. I mean, that's what we really need. I can't wait for Gritty to rise up as the champion of our post-quarantine society. Yes. That quarantine society that will have to be rebuilt completely new. Hopefully. With Gritty as our champion. With Gritty as the mascot of us all. Let's combine every sports team into one sport. Well, we'll have the opportunity because all the sports will be coming back, so we'll have a chance to reimagine what sports looks like. This is the thing, man. I can't go to the movies. I can't watch basketball. Like, I'm just going to be sitting around watching movies, so I hope you are game to record a bunch of episodes while this is going on. Well, we will see because I still have to take finals. I am still giving classes on Zoom, but come on. I could have a movie going on while that's happening. Will, you absolutely should not. You are the teacher. Nick did text me today that he was just sitting there thinking, I could be playing video games right now, all day, at work from home. I did tell my students that if they had questions, they could find me on Xbox Live. What would you do if a student actually reached out to you on Xbox Live with a homework question? I don't have Xbox Live. I only play adventure games. I I don't know. Do you have to pay for Xbox Live? Yeah. Ew. That's gross. Yeah, it's dumb. Maybe you don't. You definitely used to. I have literally never looked into it. Hmm. I have never played an online game ever, either. That's not true. You and I played Mario Kart against, like, <gasps> we French did. children in college. That was fun. We kicked their asses. Screw yeah, whatever those the French Wii U children. Mario Kart was. <laughs> yeah, they stunk, because they were probably, like, eight. I know. <laughs> if you're an adult, I'd recommend playing online games only in games where you think you'll be playing against children. It's a very good self-esteem boost. Yeah. I think I have played some shooting games when I was bullied into it by my dad and sister, but I am very bad. Okay, well, come back to the U.S. sometime and I'll bully you into playing some shooting games with me. I mean, we could always play Stardew Valley online, I think. That's my go-to game right now. I don't think that's a shooting game, Mark. It's not. There's a slingshot. (laughs) Can you shoot other players with it? No, you shoot monsters in the mines. Have you played this yet? You should. I have not. I have gotten four separate people hooked on this game here to the point where I'm concerned about one of their grades. Hey, you know what they say? What do they say, Will? It doesn't matter what your grades are mm-hmm. if you're a good farmer. I mean, that's pretty fair in real life, I guess. Yeah. And if we are living in a simulation, then being a digital farmer is the most important thing. If we're See, in a, I got you there. If we're in a simulation, I want to get the f*** out of it. <laughs> I'm over it. Anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to the most important issue of our day. Namely, when is Quiet Place Part 2 coming out? And also, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And will I ever be able to leave my room again? And also, are these people dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what is there. And this week, we are, from our own quarantines, talking about a family in isolation in John Krasinski's 2018 horror hit, A Quiet Place. This movie is very quiet. It is indeed. Although, like I said earlier, it is a quiet film and not a silent film. It's something that Krasinski said in some interviews caused some early challenges on set because a lot of people around, people on the crew and other people behaved at first like it was a silent film, like everything would be muted afterwards. And he's like, no, 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 it's a quiet film. So actually the sounds that we are making are very, very important and we need to be able to hear them. Yeah, I mean, that is true. The sounds in the movie do matter. Every sound does. Yeah, I think there's something clever about it that I like, which is the way that it sometimes uses these insert shots, like, of feet in the sand to show you 
the sound that even quiet things make, and then it'll do a shot further back where you can see, like, okay, this isn't a thing you can really hear, but there is still that little quality of it that's part of the soundscape. Yeah. What did you think of the monsters? Since they're not really part of the romance, I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think they're kind of cool. I like the giant eardrums. I like the giant ears, and I do like how the head kind of grows. Like, all the plates come out. Yeah. That's a cool touch. We saw the monsters more than I was expecting to, but I don't think it was to the film's detriment. No. I mean, this movie is so clearly inspired by Alien, and there definitely is some xenomorph DNA in there. Oh, completely. Little H.R. Giger. Have you ever looked at any of his other stuff? Yeah, he is a freak. It's creepy. There's a podcast I listen to where H.R. Giger is a recurring character, and it is always amusing. Yeah, he is clearly a guy with some weird ideas. I have not been in, but I have walked past his house that is now a museum, and even the statues just welcoming you inside are very bizarre. I believe it. So anyway, this movie, though, is A Quiet Place. It's the third movie directed by John Krasinski, but it's a big step up from his previous two, which are The Hollers and Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. I would say This is his first time doing like a big studio movie. Yeah, I was shocked when you said it was his third movie. Yeah, this is one of those ones where it's not his first movie, but people kind of act like it was his first movie. The way that like M. Night Shyamalan had two really small movies before he made The Sixth Sense. Right. Movies that people have just decided don't count. Right. So this one was based on a story by Brian Woods and Scott Beck that they wrote as a spec script and started shopping it around. And Krasinski liked it and managed to get Paramount to pick it up with him to direct it and also to write a new draft of it. I was not as scared of this movie as I thought I'd be. Just to pat myself on the back a little. I'm a big hey! I'm a big brave boy. You are a big brave boy cuz you had not seen this before. No, I hadn't. I watched it for the first time and it's on Netflix, at least in the United States it's on Hulu. Okay. Between the two of us, we can inform you on at least two streaming markets. Yes. So what did you think of it? So I really liked it. It's very good. Emily Blunt is always amazing in everything she does. Yeah. Very confused about the nail. Can't stop thinking about why that nail is there and how they're still so bad at avoiding it. Yeah, the nail is is something that I had forgotten how early it showed up. I knew it was there during the birth scene. When I see a nail sticking out of a stair, my big thing I think of is Home Alone, where it's put there deliberately. Right. But so here we just have this nail sticking out for some reason. I don't know what to tell you. That was something that, because it kept coming up, and it didn't make me kind of annoyed. It's there for the sake of drama. It is. It's one of those things that's just not explained enough and it added stakes but i didn't think the stakes it added were enough for me to not think about the nail sure but i enjoyed it i thought the kids did a good job performing yeah so those kids are millicent simmons who is a deaf actress uh, and i think it's fantastic yeah she's really good and then the son is noah jupe who you probably did not see but last year he was the child in both Ford versus Ferrari and Honey Boy. Uh, he is a good actor then, based on the reviews from Honey Boy. Yeah, he is a good actor. Hopefully he has a promising career ahead of him. Hopefully he does better than the person he played in Honey Boy. <laughs> I assume that joke is very funny if you've seen the movie. It's about Shia LaBeouf. Oh yeah, oh Shia. He's back though. He's back-ish. He has another movie coming out. Yeah, I just mentally have never gotten over Shia LaBeouf plagiarized a comic book writer and when the comic book writer called him out on it Shia LaBeouf rather than like give financial restitution or anything like that hired a skywriter to skywrite I'm sorry over Los Angeles he's a weird dude he's a weird dude 
He's someone who I just don't understand his thought processes. Yeah, it's really strange. So I did see Quiet Place in theaters. It was part of my every year I try to push myself to see some things that'll scare me because I am a big scaredy cat. And I saw it and I really dug it. It's not like the greatest horror film. It, this is the same year as Hereditary, which is a movie that I, of course, adore. Yeah, it's but it, it is. It's not Hereditary. No, but it's also not trying to be. It's like a solid thriller with a clear metaphor. It's like classic horror. Like this could have been one of just the like rock solid horror movies of the 70s or the 80s. Right. And it's also not three hours and 36 minutes, which is how long Google told me when I looked it up. And I said, Will, what are you doing to me? I don't know what caused that. I was not exactly thrilled about it. And then I logged on to Netflix and it was shorter than Little Italy. I mean, yeah, it's shorter than Little Italy. A movie that we will be discussing in the future, I believe. Yes, but we recorded the episode yesterday. Yes, and we have thoughts about it. Oh boy. Uh, And people had thoughts about this movie. How's that for a transition? Ooh, segue. So, Quiet Place was a big hit. It opened on April 6th, 2018, after a premiere at South by Southwest. And it opened in first with $50 million. Nice, strong spring opening ahead of Ready Player One, Blockers, and Black Panther. And then along the way, it got a lot of appreciation from awards and critics groups as well. It was nominated for Best Picture and Screenplay at the Producers Guild and Writers Guild Awards. And Emily Blunt won the SAG Award for Supporting Actress. Wow. Ugh, I love her. I should watch Devil Wears Prada again. Every time I see her in a movie, I think that because of the scene where she's in the hospital. See, at this point, when I see her, I mostly think of Edge of Tomorrow, which is more the zone that she's approaching by the end of this movie. Right. She is definitely becoming that character. Yeah. I love her in Edge of Tomorrow so much. That movie rules. We should do that movie. Is there a romance? Not really. No. There's like There's only a romance if you demand that Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt have a romantic relationship, which they don't. Right. So, unfortunately, not going to be covered, but you should watch it. It rules. It's weird to think about the fact that this movie features a married couple, both of whom came very close to being Marvel leads. Because Emily Blunt came very close to being Black Widow. Oh. Hmm. And John Krasinski, like, was cast as Captain America, basically. What happened? He went through the whole thing, did the screen test in the costume. He was, like, locked in. It was the kind of thing where if you follow castings for big things in the trades, like Deadline and Variety, they were like, it's basically Krasinski at this point. But at that point, it's, like, 2009 or 2010, and that gets out, and, like, basically dumb bros on the internet, the worst part of the world. Ugh. Started going on and on about how, like, it was dumb that Jim from The Office was going to be Captain America. And just, like, sharing images of, like, him looking dumb on The Office being like, this isn't Captain America. And it so spooked, like, Perlmutter, the horrible man who (laughs) controls Marvel, that they got rid of Krasinski and then brought in Chris Evans, who had not been part of the process before that. That's so annoying. It's terrible. But it also explains everything about John Krasinski's career since he left The Office. Where then it's like he's constantly trying to prove, like, yes, I can be an action hero. And he's doing Jack Ryan and the Benghazi movie and, like, all of that stuff. I know. I want him back to do comedy. Yeah. I I think he's really good at it. I hope to see more of him there. But it does feel like this kind of thing where he was a little bit broken by it and ran down this avenue of trying to prove that he could do this other thing. Yeah, it makes sense. I can't believe they've been married for 10 years. Yeah. That is such a long time. (laughs) The best story I've ever heard about their relationship is John Krasinski talking about how much he loves Devil Wears Prada and has since before they knew each other. Well, yeah, because it's a great movie. Right, but his story is talking about 
like, one time early in their relationship, she was going to be coming over, but he wasn't sure exactly when. And he was, like, flipping around, and he found Devil Wears Prada on TV. And so he's just like, I'm in, watching this. And his door was unlocked, and when Emily Blunt got there, she let herself in the door, and he, like, scrambled to turn off the TV because he was, like, kind of embarrassed to be watching a movie that she was in. So from Emily Blunt's perspective, she just saw him, like, scramble to turn off the TV when she came in. And she said, were you watching porn? And Krasinski's like, in my head, I had two options. I could tell this girl that I was watching porn, or I could tell her I was watching a movie that she's in that I have seen many, many, many times. And I said yes. (laughs) That's gotta be a really weird part of being an actor, dating an actor, is watching each other's stuff, especially from before you were together. Right. That's bizarre. And this is the first time they worked together, and it was the kind of thing where originally Blunt was not going to be in it, but then... As Krasinski, in his writing of it, made it more and more about parenthood, she was like, no, I want to do this. And in interviews, they talked about, like, being kind of scared doing that together, because, like, what if you have a horrible on-set relationship? Yeah, I don't think I would want to act with a significant other. It's kind of scary. And also, something we talked about in our Love and Basketball episode was, like, say you are acting a romantic scene with somebody you actually have a romantic relationship with, then it's kind of like on set, everybody's just watching your relationship. Right. There's such a voyeuristic element to it. Granted, the romance in this movie is not as prominent because it is so clearly focused on parenthood. Yeah. It's significant, but it's not prominent. Right. The relationship between the parents and the children is more heavily described and portrayed than the relationship between the parents. Yeah. Before we move into the meat of our episode, there's one thing that I want to do. Okay. Which is, this movie was placed on the AFI's annual list of the top 10 movies of the year. Okay. And the 2018 list is a strange one. Of the 10 movies on there, five were Best Picture nominees, five were not. One of the ones that's not is A Quiet Place. Do you want to try to guess the list, or do you want me to give it to you? Um, 2018, I'm just trying to think of what came out in 2018 versus was it released in 2017. Was Lady Bird released in 2018 or 2017? That's 2017. Okay, so it's the year after. My go-to movie standpoint now of Lady Bird. Um, was Hereditary on their list? It is not. Uh, I would have put Hereditary on over this. Yeah, me too. Mm, what won Best Picture that year? Green Book. Oh, f- That's why I can't remember this year in film, because I blocked it all. And I will tell you, Green Book is on this list as well. Of course it is. So, Green Book, uh, Black Panther? Yep. Um, hmm, Bohemian Rhapsody? Didn't make the list. Okay. Uh, Although Bohemian Rhapsody did beat this movie at the Oscars in the best sound editing category. Interesting choice. Um... I think for time's sake, you might want to have to just give me the list. Okay. The ones that were also nominated for Best Picture are Black Klansman. Okay. Black Panther. Good movies. The Favorite. Ugh. Great movie. Green Book. Ugh. And A Star is Born. Good choice. The other five are Eighth Grade, If Beale Street Could Talk, First Reformed, A Quiet Place, and Mary Poppins Returns. What? Yeah. That sounds like some Disney lobbying. I think some palms were greased. I think actually what happened there was Mary Poppins Returns did really well on at least nomination lists that came out before the movie was released. And things like National Board of Review like to do this and Golden Globes kind of like to do this. They like to sort of be the anointers where they can. 
And so when it's a thing where they have seen a movie that nobody else has seen, they might be like, yes, look at us staking a claim. There was like real Oscar buzz around Mary Poppins Returns before it opened. Well, that did not work. No. Oh, boy. I didn't see it. I love Emily it's Blunt. fine. But all I heard was that it was fine. Yeah. The best part is the 2D animation. It's a good part in Mary Poppins, the original. Right, exactly. The sad part of it in this one is that Disney literally does not have a 2D animation house, so they had to outsource that part of the movie. Oh, Disney. Yeah. Uh. I will also say that it pulls one of those unfortunate possible self-owns, like the fact that Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again could be jubilant or could be exhausted. <laughs> Similarly, the final song of Mary Poppins Returns is called Nowhere to Go But Up. <laughs> That's a good message, but also an interesting way to end your film. Right. It's one of those things where it kind of becomes a self-own if somebody doesn't like the movie. Right. It's just such an easy joke to make. Yeah. Anyway, should we get into the meat and potatoes of A Quiet Place? You know, I think they mostly grow corn. They have a very large farm for only four people. Well, I don't think they... Well, here's the thing. The thing is how long that it's been. Because I wouldn't assume that they're tending all of this farm, but it's been over a year since the aliens arrived. So for the corn to be growing in rows that neat, somebody's got to be taking care of it. Right. I think the four of them are just tending this farm. Maybe it was their farm before the incident happened. Maybe. But, like, before the incident, they would have been using, like, tractors and modern technology. Right. Who knows? Also, the huh. I just need to say the whiteboards in this movie are so bad. They are pretty clunky exposition. They're not good. What is the weakness? It's sound circled. I mean, like, here's the deal. On the one hand, that's a way to not have to have clunky expository dialogue. Yes. But a clunky expository whiteboard is not really that much better. It's it's really not. I feel like even just writing weaknesses and then having a blank space is better than having what are the weaknesses, question mark, underline. Yeah. Now, I will say, sometimes when I'm trying to figure stuff out, I will write stuff on a board and cross stuff out and fill stuff underneath. But you get the sense that this has been on that board for a long time. Yeah, it's been over 400 days. You'd think they'd all agree that... You know, they could erase the it sound part by that point. Especially because we have seen the cover of, what is it, the New York Post that just says it's sound on it in giant letters? Yeah, I was thinking about, do they use the New York Post in movies because it has the most striking graphics? Might be. This also was filmed in upstate New York in, like, the Beacon area, so they could have access to New York papers. I get that it is set in New York. I just mean in terms of using the Post over the Times. Oh, yeah, like... it's because of the cover design. Yeah, it's just, it catches your attention more. So, should we start talking about the romance now that we have poked holes in the movie? Yeah, let's do it! All right. So, every week we break down the romantic plotline of a film into five points to help guide the discussion, because Will and I like to stay laser-focused, no tangents here. We're all business. We're all business. Five minutes about... Mary Poppins returns in an episode about A Quiet Place. Unheard of. Who is she? There are two Emily Blunt movies released in the same year. It makes sense. I guess, yeah, there is some significant overlap there, but... All right, let's get to work. Point one. So point one is our prologue scene on day 89 since the monsters arrived. And there's not a lot of romance here. A thing we'll be saying repeatedly. Yes. 
But this is where we're introduced to our five, soon to be four characters. Yes. It was definitely a bit of a spoiler when the Netflix summary said a family of four. And I Whoops. counted at the beginning and I was like, hmm, I count five and I've seen four of them on the cover. I wonder which one's gone. To be fair, like that sequence of the kid with the spaceship was in the trailer. Yes. So everybody knew that sequence was coming. Yes. But yeah, so the family is in this convenience store looting it for supplies. We've got Emily Blunt grabbing some stuff. John Krasinski grabbing some stuff. Neither of their characters have names. They do according to the Wikipedia page. Well, I believe that, but no names are ever spoken. Well, yes, there's not a lot of speaking happening. Right. So they are pulling stuff together. Noah Jupe is sick. And their younger son, who's probably like six, if that, wants to play with a toy spaceship. But the spaceship has batteries in it, as they find. It makes a lot of noise. Krasinski takes out the batteries so that they'll be good. And tells the kid, like, no, we can't have this toy. Too loud. But then the kid takes the toy. And they're walking barefoot through the sand. The daughter, Reagan, actually hands the toy to him. With the batteries out. With the batteries out. But he takes the batteries. Yes, because he's like, these are part of the toy. I want the whole toy. Right. And then they're walking through this, like, trail of sand that they make. So that they can walk quietly back to their farm. And the little boy sets off the toy. And the monstrous alien comes and devours him. He dead. He's dead. I feel like we know even less about these monsters than we do about the Xenomorphs. Like, forgetting, like, Prometheus, Alien Covenant, whatever. Like, just in the original Alien, at the bare minimum, we know they went to this planet, there were creepy eggs, now there's a thing on their ship. They saw, like, the face hugger and stuff. Whereas here, it's just like, these dudes showed up and they're hunting us now. We barely know that they're aliens. Like, I don't think they ever say the word alien in the movie. No, it's not actually confirmed. It could be, like some kind of experiment that broke out right we know very little about these monsters but you don't yeah, really need part... to you need to know yeah. that it's sound exclamation it's point sound! <laughs> but yes in terms of the romance in this scene emily blunt and john krasinski both look sad point two yes, their kid dies point two <laughs> We cut from day 89 to day 472, almost a year later, and well over a year after the arrival or breakout of the aliens and or monsters. Everybody is just living their life on the farm. There's definite tension. Reagan's not handling it too well. You can tell she blames herself. That's good acting. For giving the kid the toy. Yeah. This actor, Millicent Simmons, is just fantastic. You get all of her struggles with guilt and everything from a silent performance and really what we're seeing in a way is the guilt that all of them feel later on emily blunt talks about the fact that she's like look my hands were empty enough i could have been carrying the kid so then he wouldn't have gotten caught he wouldn't have played with the toy i could have saved him right and then john krasinski also feels like a failure for not protecting his kids Right. But, you know, life goes on. You see them playing board games. Right. They play board games with, like, pieces of felt as their movers in Monopoly so that they don't make any sound. You see all the little ways that they have adjusted. They have also managed to stay very clean in the midst of this crisis, which I was impressed by. Yes, because I doubt they can shower. They definitely can't. I guess they can go to the river. Oh, that's true. That's probably what they're doing. Yeah, just go rinse off in the river. Because it's not like they're clean, clean. 
Yeah. They're sweaty. They're sweaty people, for the most part. The big thing as far as their relationship in point two is that Emily Blunt is pregnant, which means that they have continued to have sex together, not just since the invasion, but since the death of their son. Right. Very quietly, I'm assuming. Yes, they're having very quiet sex. And she's also rocking some great overalls in this scene. She looks very cute, Emily Blunt, in her pregnancy overalls. Yes. Which is a good choice of showing that she is pregnant. I feel like that's a very clear signal. You see a woman in overalls with a slight belly in a movie and you're like, ah, yes, I know what's also, going on. Anytime any person in a movie touches a woman's belly, you're like, ah, pregnant. Yes. There's so many si- signals for it. Like a woman throws up, pregnant. Anyone coughs, tuberculosis. Holds a gun, Russian playwright. Yes. So uh, there are some other cool aspects of their life. I love the sequence where Krasinski goes up on top of the silo to light the signal. And you see the other signals, not a lot of them, from other holdouts around the landscape. Yes. It definitely makes sense being isolated in small groups in this post-apocalyptic setting. Right. It's the way to stay silent. I did weirdly feel some form of connection as we're in this coronavirus quarantine. I'm like, I too cannot really go outside for fear of the dangers in the world. Oh, I didn't think about that. I watched it before we were actually, you know, expect, or at least actively believed that we had to stay inside. Yeah. I saw it this past weekend when my schools had already been closed. Yes. I've been thinking about other like bunker or quarantine movies that I can watch too. 10 Cloverfield Lane. You betcha. I don't know many. Maybe 28 days later. Once we're free, we can watch Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt again. We alive, damn it! So, anyway, any other points of their life on the farm you want to make? Not really. Point number three is this same day, because once we get out of the prologue, the whole movie takes place over, like, 48 hours. Yeah, it's very fast. Yeah, it's a slight movie in a way that I appreciate. Especially you, if you were expecting it to be over three hours. Yeah, I had no idea what to expect. So, point number three is the night, night 472, I guess. The kids have presumably gone to bed, and we just get to see this scene that's a nice moment between John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. Come a little bit closer, hear what I have to say. We're introduced to it. She's working on something, and Krasinski comes, and we see that they're still trading, like, silent jokes with each other. Krasinski signs beautiful at her. And she puffs out her cheeks, and he signs back, I didn't say anything. And she's listening to music in her iPod. Where are they getting their electricity? Generators are loud. Um, don't we see, like, some solar panels or something at some point? Maybe. I just don't, I forgot. It's been a I think we do. Okay. Because I wondered that as well. So, she's listening to her iPod, and she starts to dance. And then, in a very nice moment, she starts dancing with him, and they share an iPod in what is one of the defining romantic gestures of 2010's film, which is sharing earbuds. So what I thought of is there is a scene from, like, season two of The Office where Jim and Pam do an earbud share thing. Oh, yeah, there is. I immediately made that connection. I didn't think about that at all. I wonder if that's a little shout-out. Or at least somewhere in Krasinski's brain he remembered that and liked the idea. Yeah, it's just another example of the use of sharing earbuds is one of the definitive romantic moments in our era it is a nice scene though it's this moment of okay here is how these people in a horrible situation have managed to maintain a relationship where they have these moments of real affection right it's nice to just see their life before all of it goes bad 
Right, and I think it's significant that they have managed to make a life for themselves. This isn't like the future in Terminator, where you get the sense that, like, everybody is constantly, like, watching for the coming robots. They're sleeping on skulls and bones all over the place. Like, these people are living in a horrible post-apocalypse, like you said, but they are still living in it. Right. And look at all those bones in Terminator. Oh my god, the bones. There's just so many of them. I love that movie so much. It's so good. But he really went overboard with the skulls, in my opinion. Well, it's because he had no money, so, like, how do you make it look bad? Bones! <laughs> yeah. The amount of skulls does not match up with the amount of other bones, too. That's what I love. Well, it's because the bones are their money, <laughs> but the skulls are worthless. But the bones are also their food? Yeah. The worms are their dollars. Yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, after point three, after they dance, we start to move into the real, the heave-ho, the let's-get-it-going part of the movie, where... Yeah, so the next day... John Krasinski takes Noah Jupe out with him to go fishing. Millicent Simmons is annoyed because she wants to go and Noah Jupe doesn't. And Krasinski is like, no, Noah Jupe, you have to come along. And he says, you have to learn how to protect your mother. Yeah, this is where I think it's interesting to talk about the way that this movie is sometimes interpreted. Because basically, A Quiet Place is kind of a home invasion movie. Yes. Like, at the end of the day, the meat of this movie is the people are on their property. Aliens are hunting them. They have to fight off the aliens or monsters or whatever. Right. Like, we get this sense of stuff happening in the larger world, but really it's a home invasion movie. And that is a genre whose iconography can often trend towards fairly conservative attitudes. Yes. Because it can be like, this is my space, and I want to keep other people out of it. Right. And so, like, that can sometimes have some difficult aspects to it. When we think about the history of segregation and redlining and sundown towns in the united states and the use of aliens right if you think about like the lovecraft version of like aliens or beasts being used to signify people of color right so that's a struggle that this genre has from the start it's kind of like christmas movies where the genre is inherently conservative and you have to either put in a lot of work if you don't want to fall into these traps or you just will exist in that place. Right. And because this isn't just a home invasion movie, it's a home invasion specifically about parenting. A lot of these things get kind of reinforced because for example, we are presented with an incredibly almost like Norman Rockwelly family in this nightmare scenario where Krasinski is like, yes, like Noah Jupe, you are going to be in charge of taking care of your mother. We see the scene of them all even in silence praying around the table before they eat dinner. And we have these aspects. I think people are a little bit more attuned to it in part because in Krasinski's determination to prove he can be an action star, he has signed on to some fairly conservative projects like the Benghazi movie. Yeah. One thing in particular that got called out in this movie was the fact that Emily Blunt is pregnant and gives birth despite the fact that that clearly, like a baby is clearly a threat to the safety of the family. It is interesting. It is a risk. For sure. But I also think it makes sense in terms of the metaphor that they're focusing on in terms of the parenthood. Right. Where Krasinski talked a lot about the fact that he's like, look, I didn't really think about the like political readings, but I see where they could come from. His attitude is like, when I became a parent, I felt like I needed to protect my kid from everything in the world. Because especially with like a baby, you're like, holy cow, anything could kill a baby. Yeah, I can see where he is definitely coming from. And I don't think that the intention for all this political interpretation was there but the interpretation itself is valid as well right and i just think that's an interesting thing to talk about with home invasion movies in general and quiet place in particular where 
there are people who have taken like an anti-abortion reading of the movie. There are people who have taken this like kind of racist reading of the movie. I agree. I don't think it's, I don't think it's Krasinski's intention, but I do think it's there. And I do like that at the end of the movie, it is not the son that has to step up and save the family. It is right. The mom. It is still about parenthood. It is still the responsibility of the parent working with her older child, basically, to keep the younger one safe. Right, because if it was Noah Jupe, then that would undermine the whole theme of the movie. Exactly. So anyway, they're going through their day. Krasinski and Noah Jupe go out to catch fish. Millicent Simmons is annoyed that she didn't get to go along, so she huffs off to another part of the farm. And then Emily Blunt goes into labor. Yes, her water breaks. And, you know... And it is a moment where, like, even watching it for the second time, I was like, God, now we have to deal with this? (laughs) Yeah. Because we've already seen, in terms of, again, sort of clunky visual exposition, her mark off a day on a calendar, and it's like two weeks before due date. Yes. So we even know that this is early, which is why they're not prepared for it. But they do clearly have procedures ready for it. Right. The bathtub is set up. She goes up to the bathtub. Yes. She's going to give birth in there silently. Ooh. Thank goodness it's a quick birth, is what I gotta say. Yes. That baby slides right out. Yeah, that baby is ready to rumble. So, while this is happening, Reagan goes to visit her brother's memorial. This is point four, by the way. Oh, yes, point four. It was carried the back, but my hands were free. You have to stop. So I could have carried him. I should have carried him. Who are we? We can't protect them. Reagan goes to visit her brother's memorial. John Krasinski and son are at the river. Noah Jupe are at the river and they can talk there because the waterfall is loud enough. So they're having a conversation. Turns out that John Krasinski doesn't blame Reagan for the death, even though that's what she fears is happening. And he ca- everyone blames themselves still. We get that sense. But then they go back and Emily Blunt has lit the red lights, the danger sign. Because the aliens are here, or the monsters. Yes. Which is, again, a great, simple visual. In a movie that, like, has some clunky whiteboards, there are also some really clean elements of visual storytelling. We've seen the normal yellow lights, so when we see red, we're just like, oh, that bad. Right. What is, I can't remember what the first thing that makes noise is. Cause I, I'm not sure I remember either. Because it's not her calling out. No. I don't remember. But yes, so eventually Noah Jupe goes to set off fireworks, which drown out her birth screams because she's also already stepped on a nail and it impaled her foot. Because Oh yeah, that's such a cool idea. The fact that they have this like bundle of fireworks ready to shoot off to make noise elsewhere. And she times her giving birth screams to it. I had forgotten about that. Yeah, that is a great idea. But in terms of the romance, this is where they reunite. Yes, Krasinski rushes up the stairs and he finds Emily Blunt in the shower with the lightning fast baby. Yes, Speedy Gonzalez, the baby. So he carries her to their baby bunker. Which is a place that they have soundproofed. Yeah, so that they can just have a baby down there and it can be a baby, live its baby life. And they have It's also oxygen. where he's got his radio array. Yes. Where he's trying to contact other people. And he has an oxygen tank for a baby. Yeah, not sure what the deal is with that. I mean, I guess the baby was born early. Oxygen can't hurt, but it was interesting. True. And they've built, like, a box for the baby where it can be kept in the dark, which is going to be bad for that baby. But I guess being kept in the dark in a small box is better than being dead killed by an alien monster. Yes, that is true. This is the only scene where they talk to each other, too. Right. This is a dialogue scene, and it winds up feeling really powerful coming this late in the movie. Emily Blunt wakes up in the baby bunker, and she's like, oh my gosh, 
this soundproof basement we built actually works. Like, we are safe down here. And then immediately after that, she's like, where are our other kids? And she thought Reagan was still on the farm with her, so she's freaking out about that. Noah Jupe also lost. Because he went off to, like, the fireworks. Right. But those two actually find each other, and they end up right. on the roof of a silo. Also in this conversation in the baby bunker, this is when Emily Blunt talks about her guilt over the death of their youngest son. Oh, right. Saying, like, I could have carried him, my hands were free. And she says, who are we if we can't protect them? Which is, like, the whole idea of the movie. This horror of being a parent and your kid out in the world. There is a lot of processing of the fear of parenthood happening right in front of our eyes. And I do think that using the one real dialogue scene to explore that idea is the way to do it. Yes. Dialogue definitely helps the portrayal of her agony over her guilt of not protecting her kid. Yeah. So then... Needing to protect them, Krasinski goes out to get their other kids. Point five is basically, in terms of the romance, the romance is over because John Krasinski gets eaten by a monster. Yes, he does. But then Emily Blunt shoots the monsters. Yes, but then Emily Blunt, working with her daughter, who's, they found the weakness, which is their daughter's cochlear implants feedback noise. It disrupts the monster's sound sense enough that the plates come off its head and Emily Blunt is able to shoot it in the face. Yes, and then it is dead. And the movie ends with Emily Blunt cocking a gun while a bunch of other monsters come to investigate. Yeah, and whenever Quiet Place Part 2 comes out, we'll find out more about that. So, Will, after watching this romance unfold, do you find it believable? Very much so. Yes, there's no reason to not find it believable. Yeah, it's a marriage of people who are facing some real challenges and they've got some grief, and they just want to protect their kids and have some nice moments together. Yeah. Is this a 10? I think it might be a 10. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, there's no reason for it not to be. This is entirely believable. Especially even the fact that, like, she clearly has not talked about the way she blames herself for their son's death. I find very plausible that she's keeping that in. Like, everybody in the family has this own repressed anguish. And I I find that very believable. Me too. And it's in this crisis where they have other questions about their other children, but also, frankly, the emotional vulnerability of like, holy cow, we just had a kid, that those walls come down. Right. So, we got another 10. Woo! Do you find that their characters are dateable? Definitely Emily Blunt, as always. Yes. I don't know about Krasinski. I don't think he's a bad person. No. I think that he sometimes gets so laser-focused in what he thinks is the right thing to do or the right way to go about doing things that he's not always able to understand other people's perspectives. I agree. Do you think they'd stay together? Well, he did. He dead. So... So, no. Yes. And of the two adults in this film, who would you choose to well, date? That's not true. That is not oh, true. there's the old you man. You could date the old man who screams. Yes, the old man who kills himself. Uh, I would choose Emily Blunt. It's gotta be Emily Blunt. Yeah. This movie should not be made into a musical. <laughs> no, it'd be terrible. Um. All right. I think that about does it for A Quiet Place. Yeah, I'm glad we did this. I'm glad that you were brave enough to watch it. I'm a big brave boy. Next week, we will be talking about one of, if not the most requested films from our listenership. It's up there. It's up there. We'll be talking about My Big Fat Greek Wedding, a movie that, based off of box office, you have most likely seen. It's just an incredible box office run. I'm excited to get to talk about that. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular really help other people to find the show. All right, Will, last question. 
what is the best piece of dating advice you got from a quiet place? Something I am struggling to come up with. Oh, no. I think mine has to be if you want to show someone that you're interested, you just slip them that earbud. Or better yet, take the earbud out of your ear and just gently put it into their ear. Make sure you have consent for that first. There's no other moment of tenderness between them. That was going to be mine. And I can't think of Did anything you notice, else. Speaking of Emily Blunt in this movie, there's the scene where she's teaching Noah Jupe math. Oh, yeah. Like using the workbook and she's like, you're going to need this one day. On the whiteboard behind her, she's teaching iambic pentameter. Like it is a Shakespeare sonnet with the syllables marked. You know, maybe she was an English teacher before it all happened. She thinks it's useful. I've taught iambic pentameter the year that I taught English. I think it's fun, but it would not be my priority. It would not be on the top of my education in the apocalypse list. I don't know. I guess just learn to speak each other's language. And by that, I mean sign language if they sign. I have no idea what to say. All right. There you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Exactly. The bones are the skeleton's money. In our world, bones equal dollars. That's why they're coming out tonight to get their bones from you. The skeletons will pull your hair up, but not out. All they want's another chance at life. They've never seen so much food as this. Undergrounders have as much food as this. And the worms are their money. The bones are their dollars. And the the bullet ripped inside my chest. The clouds, they did storm. My sweet Marie, she cried for me. And then I was no more. And it was all the night that the skeletons came to life.